The Energy Gang is brought to you by Bloom Energy. Bloom is transforming the way businesses and communities take charge of their energy supply with resilient, predictable, and zero-carbon solutions. Bloom's on-site energy platform provides unparalleled control for those looking to secure clean, reliable 24-7 power that scales to meet critical business needs. Bloom's platform eliminates outage and price risk while accelerating us all toward a zero-carbon future. Visit bloomenergy.com slash theenergygang to take charge today. The Energy Gang is brought to you by Hitachi Energy. How is the grid evolving and changing? What does it mean for your business, your energy needs, your customers? Whatever your goals, look to Hitachi Energy for the right technologies to help unlock new revenue streams, maximize renewable integration, and lower carbon emissions. Visit the link in the show notes to learn more about what Hitachi Energy can do for you. This is The Energy Gang, weekly discussions about the fast-changing world of energy. I'm Stephen Lacey. Welcome. The world's climate scientists say we need to peak heat-trapping gases right now. But the world's prominent energy analysts say there's no peak in sight. What is driving this disconnect? Plus, no end in sight for the surge in battery storage around the world. And will the energy crisis in Europe derail the region's clean energy agenda? Catherine Hamilton is in Arlington, Virginia. How are you? I'm great. This is uh, the celebration of Indigenous Peoples Week. We had a nice Monday off with the, our federal government. I haven't heard you like actually relax in a long time. It is nuts right now. Actually, it's a blitz there yeah, in DC. right now it's 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 pretty much of a of a mini marathon to get to get to the end here and try to get something done for climate. Ed Crooks is back with us. He's the vice chair of the Americas at Wood Mackenzie. Hi, Ed. Hi. How's everything going? Yeah, good. Thanks. Uh, Pleased to say, slightly quieter week for me. Uh, unlike Catherine, um, we had our big uh, annual conference a couple of weeks back, which was kind of manic, and I was down in uh, Houston for that. So um, nice to kind of uh, ease off just a little bit, have a slightly quieter week this week. That makes two out of three of us. <laughs> <laughs> Let's dig into some numbers this week. So EIA, the Energy Information Administration, and the IEA, the International Energy Agency, are out with projections for emissions and fossil fuel consumption, and they do not look good. On our current policy trajectory, there really is no peak in sight for emissions, according to EIA. By 2050, we'll likely see a 50% increase in energy consumption. And even though renewables will be the fastest growing new source of energy, hydrocarbon liquid fuels will meet the majority of demand. And that means that emissions will likely rise through 2050 if we don't see massive changes to policy. In July, the International Energy Agency issued a similar analysis showing that carbon emissions will hit record levels in the coming years. And spending packages around the world, even at historic levels, are still not enough. Um, Only a small fraction of the spending on COVID recovery packages actually went to energy energy spending or climate spending. So EIA and IEA our listeners will know are notoriously conservative about policy changes, about technology changes. They're basically modeling the world around what is happening today and not mapping out what could happen. And as we know, there have been a lot of surprises about uh, cost declines, even surprises for people who followed this stuff very closely in terms of you know where wind and solar and other renewable energy costs are going. But they are pointing out a very harsh reality that we can't ignore. We're nowhere close to dropping emissions at the rates we need in order to hit the 1.5 to 2 degree Celsius 
mark. So how do we make sense of this sobering analysis? Um, Ed, let's start with you. So if you look at the sectors that are going to contribute to emissions rises, where are we expected to see those rises? Um, Where are we not making much headway? Well, I think the crucial thing is not so much in in the sectors, because it's pretty well um, broad-based across all of oil and gas and coal um, that are expected to contribute to rising emissions in, as you say, these EIA and IEA outlooks. Um, The crucial thing really is it's about parts of the world. And the big issue when you look at um, these projections and when people talk about rising emissions, essentially what they're saying is that emissions in the developed world are going to stay roughly flat, maybe down a little bit, maybe up a little bit, but roughly level. And it's emissions in developing countries, emerging economies that are really going to rise strongly for obvious reasons, because of growing population and just growing prosperity, people wanting better standards of living. That in the past has always historically gone with greater demand for energy. People want more energy services of all kinds in their homes, in transport of all kinds, in industry and so on. And so I think when we think about um, how to get the world off this path and how to move to a path which, as you say, is consistent with the goals of the Paris Agreement and a path for emissions that uh, sees them falling very sharply, which is what we need uh, even to get to a limiting global warming to 2 degrees C, let alone 1.5 degrees, then you have to think about both of those issues, I think, in somewhat different ways. You have to think about how do we really start to drive emissions down in the developed world, but also how do we manage that hugely increasing demand for energy services in the developing world with the consequences that that has for emissions. Renewables are going to be the fastest growing source of energy, but they're only expected to serve half of the projected growth in global demand uh, this year and into next year. And, you know, fossil-based generation in just the electricity sector is set to cover 45% of additional demand and 40% additional demand in 2022. Ed, does that surprise you? Not really, no. Given where we are at the moment in terms of the energy system, still the world is very heavily reliant on fossil fuels for power generation. We're seeing this right now, and I know we're going to talk about this in a bit more detail later on, but the issues that we're seeing in Europe and Asia with sky-high gas prices, very strong coal prices as well, a lot of that is being driven by the fact that the world is still highly reliant on fossil fuels for power generation. So, that is just a fact of life about where we are at the moment, and it is clearly taking time to get off that. I think the thing that is sort of alarming, really, about these projections of uh, um, the longer-term outlook from the EIA and the IEA is they're saying there's a good chance we might not get off that at all, even on a kind of a decades-long scale. We might still be heavily reliant on coal and on gas for power generation, and that obviously is very concerning from a climate point of view. I think the other thing I would say is also don't sleep on oil, but oil has not kind of taken off in the same way that uh, coal and gas have this uh, current year. But oil demand is definitely on the rise. There was some talk, I don't know if you remember, but when the pandemic hit, people were kind of kicking around the idea, oh, well, maybe we've passed peak demand for oil already. Maybe 2019 will turn out to be the highest that oil demand ever gets really doesn't look like that's going to be the case now. It looks pretty clear that oil demand will hit a new peak, will go above its pre-pandemic levels sometime probably next year. And uh, that definitely looks like we're on a rising trend for oil demand as well. So 
the whole lot of stuff that needs to be addressed, that question of what we do about transportation, how we electrify transport in particular more quickly, that's another very big issue here as well. Yeah, they're different in that EIA, which is, of course, the U.S. agency, is very much is based on current laws and regulations. So they don't look at, you know, what could we do differently? They really say, if we keep it as we have it today, this is what will happen. And you have to look at the two sectors, electric, electricity and transportation. And as Ed says, you know, global travel is going to be fully back by 2025, 2026. And so, you know, if we don't have a pathway for cleaning up that sector, that's very heavily dependent on oil, um, fossil fuels. EV adoption, it does look like um, EVs are expected to be 80% of OECD countries, especially in Europe, of light duty fleet by 2050. So they're look, EIA is looking out to 2050. So that's the good news is that that there is EV adoption um, and, and phasing out of internal combustion engines. I mean, certainly it needs to go faster. And I think that is the story for both of these is that because demand is increasing um, in developing countries for air conditioning and heating and all the other industrial processes that we need um, electricity for, because demand is increasing, we can't build out renewables fast enough. We haven't been building out renewables fast enough. So we have to make the transition quicker. We have to accelerate it and we have to put more funding into it. So one of the things that I IEA found is that, you know, they they put about $380 billion into this, you know, economic recovery, this green economy in the EU. That's only 2% of the recovery spending. And they talk a lot about building back better, just as our President Biden is doing, but the words don't really match the actions. So part of this is about, you know, if you're serious about it, if you really don't want and we can't afford to have emissions go up, we have to increase funding levels for renewables, and we also have to increase the speed. Yeah, I think that's a great point. And actually, that's something else really interesting. I just wanted to pick up, Catherine, what you were talking about just now, which is that point about the EIA version, the US version of this outlook is on the basis of um, unchanged unchanged laws, as you say. But um, that's basically what's on the statute book at the moment gets us to these uh, outcomes in terms of rising emissions and everything. It's quite interesting when you look at uh, what the IEA is doing, the international version of that, where they look at different scenarios. And they say, if you look at what's going to happen in terms of uh, what they call stated policies, so things that governments say they're going to do. And then if you also look at the pledges that governments have made, all these countries that we've seen announcing net zero goals in the run up to COP26 in Glasgow next month, um, they definitely bend the curve. So as it were, the, the status policy is not yet passed into law. That helps kind of flatten the trajectory of emissions, but actually emissions still keep rising even on that basis. If you believe that countries actually act on their pledges, then you do get emissions kind of leveling off in the 2030s or so and then starting to fall. There's still obviously a huge gap between that and actually getting to net zero around the middle of the century, which is what you'd need for uh, limiting global warming to 1.5 degrees. But still, I think that's pretty interesting in terms of what that says about the gap between aspirations and implementation, that still um, there's a lot to be done in terms of aspirations getting more ambitious, but actually even just putting in place the actual practical policies 
to deliver on those aspirations, there's still a lot to be done there. So, as I said, I just think um, uh, you're right to kind of highlight the role of policy here. It just shows how crucial policy is. Yeah, and even IEA is starting to really um, take some positions on this. I mean, they're saying to get on the emissions cutting pathway that would limit us to 1.5 degrees, that it would mean tripling investment in clean energy projects and infrastructure annually to $4 trillion by 2030. I mean, that is, that's a lot of funding and a lot of investment. And they're saying, you know, they're kind of taking positions that we are vastly under investing in technologies and not moving fast enough to meet those targets. So IEA, yes, they have traditionally been conservative, but they're starting to shine a light on this now. And whether or not you agree with their exact numbers, I think that the main thrust of this that unless we really invest and change where and how and how fast we deploy, we're going to really be in big trouble. We probably already are. I mean, to be fair to the EIA and the IEA, it's absolutely true to say that they missed the pace of technological progress in renewable energy. They underestimated how fast costs could fall. They underestimated greatly how fast the industry could grow. But um, they actually also missed a lot of changes in the fossil fuel industries as well. They completely failed to anticipate the shale gas and tight oil booms of the United States and so on, which have made huge differences to global markets for those in particular by holding down the price of oil has helped support oil demand over the past uh, 10 to 15 years or so. So I think that's another thing to bear in mind, which is just in general, as the old saying goes, forecasting is difficult, especially when it's about the future. And, um, you know, they've um, the IEA and EIA have been uh, wrong and underestimated renewable energy in the past. Um, doesn't necessarily going to be wrong in the future. And I think it certainly suggests we shouldn't sort of derive any false comfort from thinking, hey, well, it, they're always too conservative. They're always kind of erring on the side of caution here. It's probably going to turn out to be better than they think. Um, I don't think we can have that confidence. The Energy Gang is brought to you by Bloom Energy. Bloom is accelerating the hydrogen economy. Bloom's electrolyzer uses electricity and heat from a variety of clean energy sources like concentrated solar power, solar panels, and nuclear to generate green hydrogen at scale. It's also partnering with industry leaders to produce that green hydrogen. Its pioneering solid oxide fuel cell platform leverages technology originally developed for Mars, and it's uniquely designed to decarbonize the world's hardest to abate sectors. Bloom's platform has the flexibility to be deployed as a distributed generator or as an electrolyzer. Learn more at bloomenergy.com slash the energy gang. The energy gang is brought to you by Hitachi Energy. Energy access and resilience is needed everywhere. Around the globe, from the frozen Arctic to the heat of the Australian desert, Hitachi Energy has been delivering innovative grid-edge solutions for 30 years. Today, Hitachi's technologies can improve resilience and efficiency, integrate solar or wind to reach sustainability goals, and lower energy costs. It's all possible with grid-edge solutions from Hitachi Energy. Learn more about stacking value and new services to utilize battery storage at the link in the show notes. Well, let's turn to a very positive trend, the growth in battery storage. The outlook for battery storage around the world is really positive. Wood McKenzie is out with a new analysis of trends in the sector showing that storage deployments are set to triple this year. And most of that growth is coming from America and China, which account for 70% of installations. And 
those two countries have long dominated the storage industry, both hydro and battery storage. So what are the applications, the markets, the tech that will dominate this growth? Uh, Catherine, what are some of the takeaways from this report as you dug through? Well, yeah, tripling year on year is, is something else. So, you know, 12 gigawatts, 28 gigawatt hours this year in 2021, but then going to by 2030, a, a terawatt hour of demand. Uh, it's, it's a it's a really big deal. The U.S. and China certainly are uh, are dominating the market, uh, 70% between the two of them. And I can break that down a little bit um, based on some conversations I had and, and why that is the case. Um, it looks like the front of the the meter market, the big utility scale, it's a, it's almost 75% of the global deploy, deployment and that that's going to be like 700 gigawatt hours by 2030. So, you know, it looks like those, you know, a lot of the larger scale projects in those two markets are really going to dominate. And certainly lithium ion has been the predominant technology. So you've been following this space in particular for a long time, Catherine, you've been very involved in the policies here in the U.S. to promote storage. Why are America and China in particular the leaders? Yeah, let me start with the U.S. because almost 10 years ago, I guess, Beacon Power, um, the flywheel company, we were trying to get just frequency regulation to be allowed in the market for storage um, at at the FERC. And now the markets are so much more mature in the U.S., and that's really what's driving it. You know, you had the frequency regulation um, rulemaking, but then now it's really capacity, ancillary services, energy, really all the markets now are available to storage. It's really seen as a capacity resource and a reliability resource. Investors are quite familiar with storage now. The prices have come down. I mean, in addition to FERC, certainly California procurements um, also helped on that. But now outside of California, there are so many other capacity procurements, a lot of standalone storage projects. And you see kind of traditional developers and IPPs coming in to say, yeah, we're good. We're good at investing in this. Um, I talked to Jason Berwin at the Energy Storage Association, and he said, there is this sense of such high optimism in the US market that he said the investment is flowing like candy. He gets equity providers calling him to say, who can I give money to? <laughs> I mean, it is just, you know, they they want to um, give money to these industries because the market is very robust. Um, they're also, you know, ESG goals. This is considered a new asset class. Um, and investors have just become much more sophisticated. So the U.S. market is a very mature market from the standpoint of being able to access all these different market services that will pay, right? China, on the other hand, is very different. So China has a goal of 30 gigawatts of storage by 2025. And China can do, can pay for a lot of big pilot projects. And pilot projects for them are like hundreds of megawatts. So they can do all these big projects. But I talked to Ravi Mangani, um, who is with CEA now, and he said he just doesn't see China as as big a prospect on the market in the long term only because the market mechanisms are not there the way they are in the US. So you still have to make money, right? You, you have to pay for your project, but you still have to figure out how to make money in the market. Like how do you get paid for the services? And the US is much further ahead than China is on that. Yeah, I think that that's absolutely right. I, you know, and, uh, what Catherine's just been saying, I think that's a, a great summary of it. I think the thing, you know, I wonder about China, um, given the um, clear sense in the Chinese government that 
various aspects of the energy transition are extremely strategically important for China, not just um, in terms of climate policy, but also in terms of economic development, technological progress, um, national security, even in terms of um, uh, making the uh, making the country energy secure. I just feel like there's got to be still enormous potential there for energy storage in China. Um, if you think about the way that um, China is still totally dominant in the uh, lithium-ion supply chain in terms of processing lithium carbonate, in terms of actual battery manufacturing facilities, I think it's something like three-quarters, four-fifths of all the world's battery manufacturing uh, for lithium-ion is in China right now. And we think that share may erode a little bit, but still, any time over the next decade, China is still going to be the dominant global player in terms of lithium-ion battery manufacturing. So that's really a very significant strategic position, position for China, very useful thing to have in a world that's trying to decarbonize. So I think we may well see more continued policy support for lithium-ion battery installations in China. So, I mean, absolutely hear what you're saying, Catherine, and I hear what, what Ravi Magani is saying about uh, some of the issues they've got. But I still think we'd be pretty optimistic about continued growth there. I think that's, uh, that is going to be long-term. So one thing I'm really interested in, and Catherine, I'd love to hear your thoughts on this, is the question of whether we are going to continue to be dependent on lithium-ion technology for stationary storage, given the way China totally dominates that industry, given the huge increase in demand that we're going to expect for lithium-ion batteries for EVs on any kind of uh, reasonable projection for growth in the EV market, given that, I mean, there is a lot of lithium in the world, but uh, not an infinite amount, and um, that supply chain looks like it could get quite strained, and we've already seen lithium prices uh, rising very sharply this year. Given all of that, and given that, I mean, I always think just kind of instinctively it seems crazy that we have the same battery technology for a large fixed installation to support the grid and for the phones we carry around in our pockets every day. It sort of feels like some of these, I mean, maybe iron air, maybe vanadium technologies, that some of these other things are going to become uh, potentially viable for large-scale stationary storage. I don't know. What do you think? Yeah, super interesting and complicated question because uh, there's there's supply chain issues that go way beyond lithium, right? I mean, the, su the supply chain issues are, are universal at this point with all the shipping and freight constraints right now. So there, there's already some issue about how long will that take to kind of ease up. But on the issue of the chemistry, of course, um, there there's actually a move to try to move to um, – LFP, which is lithium iron phosphate from NMC, which is nickel manganese cobalt to try to to avoid having to use cobalt. So and even nickel has some issues too. So trying to use chemistries that are going to be ethically sourced to make sure that um, there we can get them that they're still cheap. Um, what I'm hearing from folks is that, you know, the basic lithium-ion battery, though, is here to stay. And one of the things Jason brought up to me was he said, you know, you have all these projects that are in place that right now are providing four hours of service, um, you know, on an ongoing basis, ancillary services, etc. And 
that in the mid-2020s, he could see sort of this augmentation wave where, say somebody says, I actually need more hours than that. I need more service than that. You just add more batteries. And so you already have your interconnection. You can you have a flexible way to deploy just based on putting in more battery packs. So there is this sort of being able to build on what you already have once you have this in place. Um, Ravi certainly could see a trend toward um, long duration technologies, given that ESS and EOS just went public, and an acceleration in in those technologies, and given that there is a lot of interest um, in the financing community. So I think there are different a bunch of different ways we can go. It doesn't it looks like for something like solid state that is definitely going to be needed for vehicles. Um, and we'll need more chemistries like that because you're going to need a lot more batteries for vehicles. But I think for storage, you're still going to continue to see lithium ion and then all these other technologies kind of coming in and getting more funding. All right, let's turn our focus to Europe. Europe is in tumult as we head into winter Uh, Natural gas is the second most consumed fuel in Europe, and prices are six times higher than they were in the spring. There's a lot of factors coming together right now that's creating this crisis. We have rapidly rising demand all at once as we hit a new stage of economic growth after COVID. There's lower production of gas than expected from Russia. We have low storage in Europe and way lower than expected wind production and hydro production. These are all contributing to the problem. And if it's an unseasonably cold winter, European businesses and consumers could face crippling costs. In fact, they already are facing extremely high costs, and it could just get worse. Uh, meanwhile, the the global backdrop is, as Ed said at the beginning of the show, oil prices are on the rise. We see rising gas prices around the world. Uh, coal prices are on the rise in Asia because uh, they can't get enough gas. There are these cascading impacts we are seeing around the world um, in this new phase of the pandemic. So what's going to alleviate the crisis? Let's look first at Europe. And and will this crisis hurt Europe's position going into the COP26 climate talks? Ed, this is a very complicated problem. A lot of things going wrong all at once. What is going on in Europe? I think you've given a great summary of, of what the causes of it are. As you say, it's been the perfect storm, if you like, of a whole load of different factors coming together, which have conspired to drive up gas prices to very high levels, both in Europe and in Asia. When you look forward, I definitely think there is quite a significant risk to European climate policy here. It's been very interesting. Statements we've heard from European politicians so far have been very much still committed to their decarbonization agenda. As we know, one of the most ambitious anywhere in the world. Um, We heard Ursula von der Leyen, for instance, the president of the European Commission, saying that what we're seeing now in terms of high gas prices actually shows why Europe needs to invest more in renewable energy. Because for obvious reasons, um, if you have more renewables, you can be less exposed to natural gas prices. So that argument is certainly out there. We saw um, President Emmanuel Macron of France coming out and giving a statement on his economic recovery plan the other day. Very interestingly, he put energy right at the heart of that and low carbon energy in particular. He had a 10-point plan 
And the first two items on that plan were, number one was um, investment in nuclear power and investment in small modular nuclear reactors in particular as a low-carbon energy solution, obviously, as he was saying, very much building on uh, France's tradition of being very strong in nuclear electricity. And then number two, he said he wanted France to be a world-class player in green hydrogen and have at least two gigafactories to make electrolyzers for the production of green hydrogen by the end of the decade. And he also stressed um, EVs and a number of other uh, low-carbon energy technologies there as part of that plan. So certainly we're seeing Europe's leaders still committed to the decarbonization agenda. What worries me is potentially this thing is only just beginning. We're seeing very high prices, but as you noted in your introduction there, gas storage levels are not great in Europe. Um, Gas supplies from Russia have been restricted, have not um, risen hugely to meet the fact that the prices are high and Europe is demanding more gas. And we're just heading into the winter. All of this has been happening at a time when the weather's been relatively mild. On our calculations, Wood Mackenzie, if Europe faces a sort of a normally cold winter, they'll be all right, they'll get through it, and they'll get through to the spring with enough gas. If we have an unusually cold winter, which is certainly possible, then things get really pretty dicey, and the prospect of Europe just having not enough gas to meet demand becomes very real. And I think when that happens, then I think all bets are off in terms of... um, the impact on European politics, impact on European politicians. I think when you think about what are the most basic functions of government, keeping the lights on, making it possible for you to heat your home and to cook your food, that's one of the most basic things the governments can do. If it turns out that European governments can't manage to do that this coming winter, then I think that's potentially a very uh, turbulent moment for Europe in general and for European energy and climate policy in particular. So you were talking about um, COP26 next month in Glasgow. That's definitely a thing to watch. But obviously, COP26 is only a stage in a process. And I think what happens after that could be just as significant as what actually happens at that meeting uh, in a couple of weeks' time. Yeah, and the, the, one of the storylines to watch might be if we see countries providing subsidies to consumers or businesses because of high gas prices to offset those high gas prices. It leaves the Europeans in a weaker position going into the climate talks, chastising other countries for their fossil fuel subsidies. So there is a, I don't know how impactful that will be in the actual negotiations, but it's certainly an issue for European negotiators going into COP26. Catherine, how do you read the situation? Yeah, so the irony here is that climate change is is impacting this enormously. The reason demand is going up, and remember demands in transportation, industrial heating and electricity, all of that is using gas, um, because of the coldest winter that depleted gas storage in Russia, which has to refill their own storage first, um, cold in Europe, cold in Asia, record colds, that is exacerbated by climate change, and then the hottest summer on record also causing increased demand. And then with water levels in hydro because of drought, dams collapsing, even in Norway, they're at 10-year lows. 
A lot of the nuclear plants have been out because of some of the micro cracks in their walls. So they've had to have a rolling program of repairs. The UK had had some problems with nukes. Even there was a little bit of wind that wasn't able to function. Now this was like blaming the Texas uh, outages on wind also <laughs> when you when you say that's the problem. But you know, part of the issue is that we didn't hedge. The prices in Europe have been low for a long time. Industrial consumers, the small utilities did not hedge. And now prices have gone up and they're panicking. And, you know, part of this is trying to figure out how do I diversify? How do we not double down on gas? How do we make sure that we have flexibility of resources instead of just giving everybody a bunch of money to heat their homes, which you may have to do that. And France evidently has some decent levels of storage. And so they can prioritize residential customers um, to a certain level. But let's invest in energy efficiency. Let's get rid of the single pane windows. Let's make sure homes are able to with to hold heat and be cooler um, by using efficiency. We need to make sure we have demand side resources that are very flexible. We have to make sure that we actually diversify and build more renewables. And I think that, you know, what we don't want to do is have instead of diversifying and taking a look at this is like, this is the risk of relying on one source of fuel, instead looking at this as an opportunity to make sure that we really do have energy security and that it's clean energy. Because if you exacerbate climate change, this is just going to get worse. So this is an extremely complicated picture, as we've pointed out, related to storage dynamics, supply demand dynamics, uh, renewable energy availability, and you can't blame it on any one thing. Even though renewables are not the single problem here, the low availability of hydro and wind power is a factor. And so we need supporting technologies like potentially hydrogen, other forms of long duration storage, and technologies like nuclear. Do you see that providing any other momentum for these kinds of technologies? Any thoughts on that? Yes, I definitely do. I think... Um what we're seeing these last few months has absolutely underlined that nuclear does need to be part of the mix. One of the other things that's going on here is that um, Germany is shutting down its nuclear power plants. Uh, Sweden's been shutting down nuclear power plants, um, which at the same time as a lot of countries in Europe uh, are also shutting down all their coal-fired power plants, does seem like a really... Uh, reckless and counterproductive move. I can see that investing in new nuclear plants is difficult because they are very expensive. They take a long time to build. Um, we've had huge delays and cost overruns for the new nuclear plants that people have been trying to build around the world. I kind of still, in my heart of hearts, I still think it's worth doing, even if it costs a lot more than anybody thinks, because... Um, I still, in my heart of hearts, think it's worth doing, even if it ends up costing a lot more than anybody expects at the beginning, just because however much you spend, you've got then a generally highly reliable zero carbon source of electricity there. And there might be times, as Europe is finding out right now, when you really need that power. So I think the case can be made, but I can see why it's, it's a difficult case to make, given the expense actually shutting down existing plants just seems wildly irresponsible to me. And I think that case for hanging on to them 
as long as is practical, I think that case is very robust. And the idea that we can afford just a jettison a whole lot of reliable zero carbon electricity is entirely wrong. There's a thing, we've been talking a lot about Europe. I think it's very important to realize also that there are serious energy crises in China and India as well going on right now. And one of the things that's been happening in China is China has been boosting coal production and boosting coal burn for power. And there's been a government, um, there've been a number of government edicts that went out. And I, I was reading a really interesting piece on Carbon Brief about this from earlier in the year. And um, the the instruction from government said, uh, establish before you break. And this is reversing an old uh, slogan of Mao Zedong's where he said, you have to break before you can establish. But basically, the current idea is that you should have energy security and reliability in place in whatever your new system is going to be. And you should know you can trust it in a new and lower carbon world before you get rid of the old high carbon technologies. And I think that's a great way to think about it, actually. I think that's exactly right, that um, if you don't do that, if you just kind of rush into knocking out higher carbon technologies um, without being certain of what's replacing them, you're going to end up with all kinds of unintended consequences, including what we're seeing right now. And so yeah, beyond any kind of specific technology, and as I say, I can see why the case for nuclear is debatable, um, but just as a general principle, you do need to plan all of this properly. You do need to have a sense of what the risk factors are. And you do need to know that your energy supplies can be secure as you move on that road to low carbon and zero carbon. Because if you don't do that, all kinds of problems are going to ensue, which in the end are going to be deeply counterproductive so, Ed, I would take a slightly uh, opposite point of view because I'm of the uh, necessity is the mother of invention attitude. And I, I, I think if we wait to make sure that we're secure, that those incumbents will never change. And we have to change or else our planet is sunk. And it's just going to get worse and worse and worse. And we'll just have to build more and more of the big dirty stuff that everybody believes is reliable and firm. And I'm not saying we need to shut everything down. I agree. That's not a great plan. But we really do have a plan for all right, then how do we make this a sustainable transition and really use all the resources that we have in the mix, whether it's demand side efficiency, demand side flexibility. I think flexibility is going to be key to this because demand isn't always the same all the time. Um, and that we continue to invest more in renewables because if you just invest in a little bit of renewables and they're not working one day, then of course it's going to look like it's a failure, but you need a lot of everything that's clean and zero carbon. And I fear that you know allowing for coal to continue is simply going to entrench the incumbents and cause us never to be able to transition. So that I worry about. Yeah, what this continually teaches me is that this is wildly unpredictable, unstable, and messy. And there are, you know, every few years or every couple of years, crises like these that remind us just how nonlinear this path is, which is why, you know, there are very clear pathways like 
we should probably electrify as much as possible. We should deploy as much renewables and nuclear as possible. And, you know, it's pretty clear that that pathway can can go fairly far in reducing emissions. But along the way, there there's a lot of messiness. There are a lot of trade-offs to certain technologies. And anyone who is an evangelist for any one particular pathway ignores the messiness of the reality of the world that we live in. So this is a reminder to me, and I hope to all of our listeners, of just how how nonlinear this is. And the pathways we think we tied to we are tied to may shift dramatically uh, at a moment's notice. And the good news is that based on the previous topic, we have a whole lot of storage we're going to be able to depend on. When in doubt, more storage. Let's go to free electrons, folks. Catherine, what is your story this week? Yes, you may have heard of an organization called Greentown Labs. It's their 10th anniversary. They were started in 2011 by four companies, including Promethean Power, Coincident, Alteros, and Oscomp. And these four startup uh, entrepreneurs said, we need a place to be. We need to have some structure to us. We want to share resources. And since that time, their Greentown Labs has created $1.56 billion in economic impact, has helped over 400 companies, 88% startup survival rate, which is huge. They've raised $1.5 billion and created 7,800 jobs. This last spring, they started Greentown Houston, which has been an incredible hub of 180 startups. It's really helping in that energy transition in the heart of oil country. So it's super interesting. They just announced their first chairman of the board or chairperson of the board, Alicia Barton, who many of us know was the head of NYSERDA, and she's now the CEO of First Light Power. And additional board members are Don James, who is the U.S. head of sustainability and environment for Microsoft, and then Secretary Kathleen Theoharides, um, who's the Massachusetts head of energy and environment. And I am their third <laughs> Board board director, which I am so excited about, um, their third new board director, and um, this is just an incredible community of startups. And uh, I've worked with a couple of them. Form Energy is one of them. Line Vision is another. And uh, I'm super excited to do this. I'm sorry to make this into a log roll, but I mostly wanted it to be an advertisement for Greentown Labs, which I think is phenomenal. Log roll away, and for a good cause. Greentown is. Fantastic. They are local here in Somerville, just outside of Boston. That's where their first headquarters was. And they are one of the true pioneers in this space. Ed, what's your free electron? I'll come to that in a moment. First of all, congratulations, Catherine, on, on getting that directorship. That's really fascinating. <laughs> Thank you. As you say, Greentown, a uh, great outfit. And yeah, I've been particularly interested in uh, what they've been doing in Texas and that move, as you say, to the, the heart of the, the oil and gas industry. Um, really interesting move and says a lot, I think, about the way the energy industry in Texas is changing. So, you know, really uh, yeah, fascinating outfit. Um, anyway, yes, yeah, so look, my, my free electron, I just could not resist this one. This is um, Prince Charles's car and what he runs it on. I don't know if you've seen this, so Prince Charles, it probably needs no introduction, but heir to the throne of the United Kingdom. Um, he gave an interview to the BBC talking about... Um, COP26 and, and talking about climate change and so on, and made a lot of kind of interesting points and, and a lot of uh, pretty serious points. The thing, though, which has been hilarious about it is that um, he's a bit of a car nut on that, which I hadn't realized this, but he's a, a bit of a car enthusiast, and he has a 1970s Aston Martin that is his 
favorite car, which he drives and absolutely loves. And he's saying most of the, uh, the vehicles on his estates have uh, now been switched to EVs, but he keeps this old 70s Aston Martin, but he does run it on biofuels, and he runs it specifically on ethanol made from uh, surplus English wine production and alcohol fermented from whey made from cheese production. So basically, Prince Charles has a car that runs on wine and cheese. So this, of course, people have found this, as you might expect, pretty hilarious. And it does seem pretty funny, the prince in his wine and cheese powered car. But the the interview was um, interesting, though, and as I say, he does make some, some serious points. But I'm not sure I really agree with them on this question. So one of the, one of the points he's making with the wine and cheese powered car is to say that biofuels are essential because EVs can't do everything we're going to need uh, them to do for transport. And therefore, if we want a low carbon, zero carbon solution, it's going to have to come through biofuels. I wonder if that's right anymore, particularly for, for cars, for light passenger transport. It just feels like the EV momentum is so great now. Maybe the window for biofuels is closing. Maybe we're not all going to be driving around powered by wine and cheese. But still, <laughs> great story. I'm guessing there are more higher value uses for wine and cheese. Well. I wonder when this will make it into Netflix's The Crown. <laughs> A story that caught my eye this week was YouTube deciding that it was going to demonetize climate denial content on its platform. And it recently made a decision to demonetize anti-vaccination content. And the platforms, I'm really interested in this story, obviously, because there's a an energy and climate piece to it. But be, because these media companies have gotten so big and influential, as we've realized over the last few years, that they've formally called themselves platforms and really stayed away from content moderation. But it has become increasingly clear that they are media companies and they are needing to make editorial decision about what is damaging on their platforms and environmental issues and climate change have been a really important part of that. Facebook has has had climate change at the center of some of its decision at its own Supreme Court and now YouTube is jumping in and and pushing aside some of this content, not taking it off the platform, but just saying you cannot make money off of climate denial and advertisers are actually telling YouTube and, and Google Uh, that they want this because they just don't want their content to be put uh, against some of this this climate denial. So that felt like a pretty important media story. That is going to wrap up the show. Ed, a great pleasure. Thanks very much. Been a great pleasure for me. Catherine, always fun. Absolutely. Catherine Hamilton is the chair of 38 North Solutions. And Ed Crooks is the vice chair of the Americas at Wood McKenzie. Thanks for being here. This is a production of Wood McKenzie and Postscript Media. We are on Twitter. You can get all of us there. So if you have feedback, story ideas, you want to comment on this episode or just give us a holler and tell us what else we should cover, hit us up. The Energy Gang and Ed, Catherine, and I are all on the platform as well. We'd love to hear from you. And we will, of course, catch you next week. This is The Energy Gang weekly discussions about the fast-changing world of energy. We'll catch you next time.